The Rewindables, the one you take to bed with you. This is 24-year-old Charles Lindbergh in 1926, the aviator's earliest known film footage. He's just a year out of Army flight training school and already dreaming of making history. Lindbergh wants to win a $25,000 prize for the first solo non-stop flight from New York to Paris. At stake is the future of air travel. Transatlantic ocean liners are safe and reliable, but slow. Planes are considered too dangerous. Six pilots have already died attempting the 3,600-mile crossing. Long Island, May 20th, 1927. Lindbergh readies the spirit of St. Louis, his $10,000 custom-built monoplane. Five hundred spectators have gathered to see him off. On board, he's packed five ham sandwiches to keep him going. At 7.52 a.m., he's off. And after a few bounces, aloft, just barely clearing telephone lines. He will be in the air for 33 and a half hours. No radio and only a compass. The press dubbed him the Flying Fool. At 10.24 p.m. in Paris, tens of thousands witness his triumphant night landing. Instantly, 25-year-old pilot, now dubbed Lucky Lindy, becomes the most famous American in the world. President Coolidge orders the USS Memphis to bring him back to New York in style. people line Fifth Avenue for a ticker tape parade. He epitomizes the nation, young, handsome, and brave. And his daring feat proves that flight is the future of travel. Congress awards Lindbergh the Medal of Honor. And the following year, he becomes Time Magazine's first ever Man of the Year. You gotta slow down, Chris. You gotta slow way down. Did you say your name is Jim or Jim? Uh, well, it's both, actually. Um, teachers, when we're growing up, you know, they used to always say, hey, you can have this one. He's a real jam. Well, good morning from Calcutta. You get the slow way down. Full play. Women, ain't they perfect? Not always. Yes, they are. They're perfect. Don't matter if they're skinny, fat, blonde, or blue. If a woman is willing to give you her love, it's the greatest gift in the world. 
makes you tall, makes you smart, makes you deep shine, boy or boy, women are perfect. My choice for the vice presidency is Senator Dan If you're ever lonely watching television, your troubles may soon be over. That's because finally there's a TV that talks back to you, kind of. Interactive TV doesn't really speak, but there is a whole lot more give and take than with your average two. You have to be willing to rewatch. All right, welcome back to the Rewindables. Chris Wendelkin, Ben Craw, and Christian Lynch. Those are the names of everyone on this podcast. This <laughs> the is the introduction to this. Yep. This is this is the introduction yep. to a podcast that we do. Yes, Ben. Um, we you. are talking today about Joe Johnston's 1991 film, The Rocketeer. We are indeed. We are. Christian, which is your name, even though you're my cousin. Yep. <laughs> uh, ben, we uh, last we left off, uh, our our hero protagonist Cliff Secord just un, un, uh, discovered this magical rocket pack, mm. and uh, it's like incredible magical powers. And we see this uh, incredible glint in his eye, and we don't know what will happen next. We see and a glint in his extremely handsome eye. In his That's right. Cliff Perfect Secord is handsome, folks. Crafted, carved from marble face, uh, and and uh, yes, um, yeah. Uh, they have just discovered that this is no mere bomb. This is not a, a, a threat. This is a rocket pack that is designed to fit snugly on your broad shoulders with a little clip of a belt. This mm-hmm. is a jetpack, ladies and gentlemen. That is what Cliff Secord and PV have just learned is in their possession. And what can we do with this? We cut to an exterior shot outside of a building that reads Lucky Lindy's Flight School. Yes. This is hangar number two of Chaplin Field. So we're still in the same kind of compound uh, that that these guys, you know, operate. So it's just in. the exterior of where we were inside, right? Yeah, I'll give you. I'll give you a little. This is um, actually, and I think this is an interesting point. Is Chaplin Airfield was located in the Miracle Mile of uh, of Los Angeles. So, understandably, uh, PV and and Cliff realize, hey, if we're going to test this rocket, this is probably going to make a commotion. We probably should not do this near our house in our field. So for reference, they actually drove south of the mountains mm, to a wide right. open I, field in the Miracle yeah, Mile I, area to Chaplin Airfield in order to test this rocket pack, which is right. now Wilshire Boulevard, Fairfax Avenue, San Vicente. Wait, I was going to say, so like what is now Miracle Mile? This is what is now Miracle Mile? Technically, um, based on the Chaplin Airfield, unless there was a location up in the valley, because they do mention shortly after this, they're like, the whole valley is going to know. But mm. technically, Chaplin Airfield was in Miracle Mile, which to me makes more mm. sense that they would drive far away because if they're going to make a scene, yeah, everyone's going to see it and you don't want to be close to your house. So I kind of love the idea that PV and Cliff were like, let's go test it at that airfield that's far away from our our normal hangar at Bigelow's. Right, that's I, I stand corrected. The Chaplin Field, I was confusing Chaplin Field with Bigelow. Uh, so this is a separate area, a separate compound from okay. the Bigelow facility where they work. Yeah, so thank you for that clarification. Sir, yes, sir! 
No problem. I'm here to tell you about maps. That's my job. <laughs> Unofficially, I am the map guy. We love naming episode. areas in Los yep. Angeles. There's nothing more fun, folks. But they're at Lucky Lindy's. Lucky Lindy's Flight School, Hangar 2. We see the slogan, Ben. We see the nice propeller in this logo outside of the flight school here. And it's it says... Win your wings with Lucky. That's right. And I'm going to start here with a little kind of a, a slight backtrack, but sort of a uh, just I, I wanted to to kind of point out a theme um, that we'll be kind of discussing over and over again, which I uh, we've kind of you know touched on, but I, I haven't really quite spotlighted. And that is the theme of luck. You, of course, probably recall, you know, Cliff's uh, chewing gum, you know, his uh, his, his uh, Lucky Beeman's chewing gum that he puts on the tail of his uh, GB before takeoff, which uh, PV then removes and throws on the ground. Um, and, uh, but actually, I wanted to uh, see if you guys noticed, um, if we go back to around the 54 mark uh, of the film, all the way back in the beginning when we first uh, lay eyes on the GB, did you guys notice the um, the art on the on the side of the nose of the plane? Wait, what was the timestamp in? Uh, around the 54 second mark, um, when the oh, fi- <laughs> you said the 54 mark. I was uh-huh, like, ladies I and gentlemen. Ju- yeah. I must have missed the minute. No, <laughs> yeah. no, nope. uh, couldn't be fifty-four minutes. You thought we were ten minutes into this movie? No, fifty-four seconds. But ben is talking about yeah, that's fifty-four z- seconds. Zero colon fifty-four. Sorry, this is just a quick. I just just to point out a visual thing um, on on the uh, the nose of the plane. Um, uh, or you could. It's basically there's there's a, oh, yeah. a little little bit of artwork there. You see that? Yeah. Yes, yep. indeed. The two dice. Um, the two dice. And wow, then. Dude. If you scrub to 137, you see the other side because um, we're seeing the left side of the nose uh, when it's first being pushed out of the hangar. Um, and then later on outside the hangar, we see the other side at the 1 minute 37 second mark. Wait, Ben, and also there's a shamrock. Shamrock, a four-leaf clover shamrock um, underneath a pair of dice um and so and then of course uh i wanted to remind us of the uh picture of jenny that cliff has is the little black and white photo uh of jenny in his in his uh you know on his airplane control panel that says love from your quote good observation this is great um and so yeah just like i just love the little the little threads that are that are tied together with with all the luck stuff um uh, we also Man, might recall Agent weird. Agent Fitch uh, telling Cliff, file a claim with Uncle Sam. Who knows? You could get lucky, uh, which is kind of a throwaway line. Probably not right? that significant. Um, but the uh, Shamrock, of course, the logo for <laughs> Notre Dame. <right? laughs> yeah. Wow. The Fighting Irish, of course. How could we forget? Notre, Notre Dame. Dame. Notre Dame. What a great... It's a wonderful <laughs> school, yep, school, folks. Also a, great also a cathedral. Yep. Also a cathedral and in Paris. And the college of famed football player Rudy Rittiger. You're five feet nothing. A hundred and nothing. And you got hardly a speck of athletic ability. And you hung in with the best college football team in the land for two years. And you're also going to walk out of here with a degree from the University of Notre Dame. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. And after what you've gone through, if you haven't done that by now, it ain't gonna never happen. But yeah, I just wanted to uh, point that out. Keep the theme of luck in mind. It will come up again. Yeah. Um, 
So, but yeah, so Lucky Lindy. Um, who is uh, who is this Lucky Lindy? That sounds like a, a cartoon character, you might be thinking. Uh, but no, of course, if you're a student of history, you know that is a reference to Charles Lindbergh, uh, the uh, first man uh, to make a nonstop transatlantic flight, uh, which he did in 1927, uh, taking off from New York City and landing in Paris. Uh, of course, he flew the famous Spirit of St. Louis. Um, and I'm not going to get into a whole history of Charles Lindbergh here. I don't want to derail us. Uh, but suffice it to say, Lindbergh, uh, due to this accomplishment, was in the 1930s basically more famous um, uh, than anyone in America. After Charles Lindbergh made the first nonstop solo flight across the Atlantic, he became an instant national and international hero. What followed in the United States was the so-called Lindbergh boom in aviation, an intense interest in aviation of every way, shape, and form. It is estimated that when he got back to the United States and flew a tour with the Spirit of St. Louis, approximately one-third of the population, almost 50 million people, saw him. His effect was huge beyond belief. In the 1920s, just about anything dealing with flight was very closely watched by the press. Every new flight was something different, a different speed, a different distance. Flying across the Atlantic was a very, very big deal. Lindbergh was the perfect archetype of an aviation hero. He was 25 years old, tall, thin, he was handsome, perfect example of a young American hero. There were little children running around wearing a Lindbergh helmet. Teenagers and young adults were dancing to the Lindy Hop, very popular dance craze across the nation. Almost immediately, you see all these products emerging. Anything you could put his face on, somebody did. He was the biggest of all the big deals. He ignited the world's interest in air transportation. He was, like you talk about the, the top box office Hollywood star of the era, um, or, you know, Babe Ruth maybe, or whatever, uh, President Roosevelt. Like literally they paled in comparison to this one dude who flew an airplane flying alone. It was for 33 so and was, a half uh, hours. In, in Just fact, to be uh, clear, flight, 33 and a half hours, 33.5. which um, sounds remarkable on paper, but truly think about what he's flying, which is like an open cockpit uh, plane across the Atlantic. He, at times, just to be clear, this story, and we'll do a bonus pod, but Charles Lindbergh at times flew yeah. uh, apparently 10 meters above the ocean just to stay awake because he needed to have some level of <laughs> understanding of like, I could die if I don't pay attention. At times, he flew above 10,000 feet until yeah. frost was on his plane. Um, he nearly died multiple times, and he said... All he felt when he was halfway through this trip was dread because there was no going back. Uh, he did survive. And I think what's interesting, too, is that when he lands, he does, he's never been to Paris. He doesn't even know where to land. Uh, so he circles the Eiffel Tower before mm. landing. Uh, he sees that there's a field. He lands in a field. And eventually 150,000 people greet him and carry him around for, for for a half hour on their shoulders, uh, just like Rudy Rittiger, Rudy Rittiger from Notre Dame. Um, <laughs> yes, but it this character That's is right. actually relevant because you do see uh, a statue in front of the Lucky Lindy's um, yeah. uh, facility, and Cliff and Peavy are sawing it down. Sorry, one one last thing because I didn't actually get to my the, the the final point of my story, which is. Where did the name Lucky Lindy come from? Because, um, of course, that's what we see 
on screen uh, in the frame because I am focusing on <laughs> uh, the movie and not going down an unnecessary uh, tr- uh, digression uh, in history. Uh, Lucky Lindy was, in fact, a song um, written and composed by L. Wolf Gilbert with lyrics by Abel Bear. And it was finished, so the flight, um, Lindbergh's flight, he, he took off uh, in the early morning of Friday, May 20th, 1927, and he landed in Paris on May 21st. This song was literally finished and dropped on May 21st. Um, or sorry, it, it was finished on May 21st um, and was performed, quote, performed to great acclaim in several Manhattan clubs that very night. So, like, literally these guys, uh, knowing that Lindbergh was, you know, attempting this flight, which, of course, could end in tragedy, odds are it was not going to be successful because this is a man flying by himself uh, for 33 and a half straight hours over o- open ocean. But they were like, hey, in case this, uh, this, this fucking maniac does pull this off, like, a we should ready. have a little something ready to celebrate. <laughs> so these guys wrote... Wrote this song, Lucky Lindy, to drop that night in Manhattan nightclubs. Um, and then uh, a guy named Leo Feist uh, printed the song, and it was literally on sale to the public by Monday, May 23rd, two days later. Um, and so, and uh, uh, yeah, it became a massive hit, um, and to the point where literally hundreds more songs just about Charles Lindbergh and his transatlantic flight and the Spirit of St. Louis followed. Um, there were multiple versions of Lucky Lindy. Um, there were other songs, uh, with titles like, uh, won't you take me to heaven? Please Lucky Lindy do, uh, like an angel. He flew into our hearts, uh, just like a butterfly through sun and rain. And he did it. The thing that couldn't be done. Uh, those are some of the song titles. Um, and uh, I read something here on uh, Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> you visited CharlesLindbergh.com. Um, <laughs> I find that hard to believe after all of this. Yes, in the two <laughs> in the two year period following Lindbergh's flight, the U.S. Copyright Office recorded three hundred applications of Lindbergh songs, um, but the competition didn't fare as well as Lucky Lindy. Uh, 30 songs carried the same title, uh, "Spirit of St. Louis." A dozen were just Lindy. Uh, so they didn't have to deal with the spelling problems of the last name Lindbergh. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to do a quick little uh, thing about uh, Lucky Lindy. And no, we are not going to do a deep dive uh, at this time, at this time, into whether or not Charles Lindbergh was a Nazi sympathizer. Uh, yeah, maybe um... later, but not now. The short answer is not conclusively, but kind of, and it's a way longer and more complicated answer to that question than you would want if yep. you were trying to claim that he was not. Uh, okay. But again, that's a Great. bonus episode. Uh, uh, definitely. All right, so we're, we're on the front lawn of this building. Yes. There's a wooden statue. We learn that it's Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> the statue is shaking, and we hear the sound of a wooden. We we, we hear the sound of sawing wood, right. and then this crack. Yeah, we hear this this crack, and the statue topples. Tip her over, tip her over. Easy, okay, easy. I got it. Watch it. Ah! And Cliss yep. and Cliss toppled into their truck. <laughs> topples yeah. is a very dramatic word to use, uh, Chris. This is the scene in central Baghdad. Earlier today, we saw this crowd, this small crowd that's has swelled to this now. 
taking off their shoes, throwing them at this statue, which is a deeply insulting uh, Arab gesture. It, it looks uh, like it they, might be coming down. Before they we started go. Uh, taking it. Could uh, get the brass to uh, bend, but not to uh, not to break. Apparently, uh, people throwing garbage uh, at the at the statue. And uh, Lara Logan is uh, back online with us again right now. Lara, uh, you're right there. Tell us what's going on. Just in the last few moments, a U.S. Marine tank with a large chain has pulled. The statue of Saddam Hussein down, this giant statue crumbled at the knees and toppled over. It's still hanging from the pedestal, but as it collapsed, a great roar came up from the cloud. There it goes. It has fallen down to the ground. It has come apart. The crowd is, is, is going mad, rushing towards it. They've been pelting it with stones. Uh, the Marines are, are trying to hold them back a little bit, but generally letting them run through. And, uh, and express their emotions. People are jumping up and down on top of the statue on the ground, their arms raised in the air. It is an incredibly symbolic moment for the people of Iraq. Saddam Hussein's regime has been held in place by symbols like this across the city. It is <laughs> amazing that America has such great reverence for Charles Lindbergh and yet and uh, Cliff are like, I'm going to go saw down that statue of that man that everyone loves and steal it tonight. Uh, kind of great. Yes. Is it an act of political <laughs> protest? That is the question. Um, I don't, again, I don't know if we need to get into that right now, hey, but let's just it's say not it has for us to decide. It some but echoes. It is yes, what it is. There are some echoes yeah, in history of statues. It certainly does. Statues We've coming talked down about of possibly problematic men. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about, you know, that 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 these that Cliff and, and PV now are mm -hmm. in possession of a weapon of mass destruction <laughs> and next we see them bringing down yep. a statue of a deeply complicated man. So, we're just Where tracking are the WMDs. It. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. <laughs> Nope, no weapons over there. <laughs> Maybe under here. <laughs> they load up the statue into the back of their truck. Yeah. And from there, what happens next, Christian? We cut to up. Oh, we, we make an a interesting cut of them, first of all, driving away in yet another beautiful car in uh, just this brown truck that I would love to drive, a classic uh, yeah, working man's truck. Uh, but they drive into the night. They right? drive into the night. And also, we, can we point out the the box just real quick? The boxing gloves and speed bag, uh, yeah, affixed to the the exterior wall. I just love that little detail. Yep, I don't know if that was a, just there or the exterior of this building, Lucky Lindy's. I kind of like love the clean, simplistic design of it. Just a beautiful like black and white, really clean graphic. 
for the front of this flight school, just in general. Beautiful Wait, so borders. They, um, do you think they just, like, guys would just go out there and hit the speed bags? I think so. You were like a pilot. Just, yeah, stay in shape. You're just you like know? a pilot training. I, I and do. And you're based, like, yeah, maybe let's like do a couple rounds. Yeah, I think, I think in general, based on looking at everything I've seen of flight at this era, you basically are fighting the plane. The whole thing is not a smooth process. I think yeah. this is not the simple like, oh, I just hold this little it's, joystick and it goes. It's probably it, like a rodeo. It, it's like it, riding like, yes. like a crazy. It strikes boat. me as a full body activity. And it's not as simple as just like, oh, I hit the buttons and it goes. Like, no, you have to be in in shape to fly a plane. Yeah. And it, it doesn't strike me as um, it, it makes sense that there would be a speed bag out there that you basically have to keep in full cardio shape to be a pilot and yeah um, you've got to right. and or saw down you don't think you can saw down a statue without some <laughs> some reps you got to have some some upper body strength to saw it down point. and steal it you know very good point yeah you got to be in shape and you've also got to have like a kind of a clear calm mind um and you know i'm not a a, a trained boxer but i have heard from some friends who engage in that, uh, that it's very therapeutic and, uh, you know, probably, probably good for just kind of getting the right <laughs> brain space to, uh, to wrangle that, that, yeah, that ship so we up were in the air. A lot of damaged men back then and you needed to get your aggression out somehow. So wham, they drive off into the night in their truck and we smash cut to, uh, mm. three dapper gentlemen, oh, uh, first and foremost character actor, Paul Sorvino, oh, here um, we go. who, is dressed in a 1920s, 1930s gangster-style outfit uh, with a boutonniere on his uh, lapel and two henchmen goons behind him with just shocked face. And they are standing in some kind of room that has a very elegant, opulent uh, setting that we don't quite see yet. But this is the introduction of a very important character to our film, Mafia Man, Eddie Valentine. What's going on, Sinclair? Eddie Valentine. What a image of just grace, class, and yet also I mean, menacing authority. An absolute stud in this impeccable double-breasted suit. Yeah, mm-hmm. the gray, the, corsage, pin, the, the, the soft pinstripes. Fedora, the beautiful floral tie, mm-hmm. the tie pin. The little pin right in the middle of the tie. Oh, look at the pin. Yeah. Look at the pin. And then he's flanked by these two mobster henchmen right. over each shoulder. We've got Rusty on the left, Spanish Johnny, played by Robert <laughs> Miranda, on the right. Yep. Yeah. And we also get, uh, so basically we cut to Paul Servino playing Eddie Valentine. And he goes, what's going on, Sinclair? What's going on, Sinclair? Lenny is dead. Wilma's all wrapped up like a mummy in County General. You didn't play straight with me. This is where we get our first shot of another important character that we have only seen um, via a billboard at this point. Mm -hmm. It is actor Timothy Dalton, James Bond himself, playing Neville Sinclair, who is a Clark Gable uh, handsome man who is is kind of a stand-in for another actor. And who is that, Ben? Tell us. I was going to say Clark Gable slash maybe a, a bit of an Errol Flynn character. Errol Flynn, certainly. I think he's Errol Flynn in terms of the um, the character, the actor Neville Sinclair is certainly an Errol yes. Flynn type. But Timothy Dalton Clark Gable handsome. So Paul Servino and Timothy Dalton here both have incredible opening like shots, yeah, introductions really for the audience. Okay, so first like Paul Servino is just looks 
unbelievable. Yeah, let's oh, back up. I feel like we're badass. going. We need to. We need to slow down a yeah, little. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going too we, fast. I still need to, to. I've got some stuff on Sorvino. I, I just. Yeah, we yeah, need yeah. to give this man his due. Yes, Paul um, Sorvino has a perfect look for a mafia man of this era. The Paul Sorvino very much has a kind of. A, a pug face. I don't mean that in a mean way, like, but he's oh, got yeah. that that kind of face that you're like, this is a gangster. This, I just read his body language and body type that this is a mafia man uh, who means business. And his two henchmen behind him are lackeys of the highest form that they are kind of <laughs> sulking behind Eddie Valentine yeah. as as the muscle, but it does not appear that the muscle are the threat. The threat is Eddie Valentine. Clearly, these guys are are backup in every sense of the word. But yeah, I, it's funny you mentioned the pug face. I have in my notes, Sorvino has the face of a bulldog more than any other actor in history. Um, yeah. And of course, we'll be seeing actual bulldogs and cafes in the shape of actual bulldogs uh, uh, shortly later in the film. Man, he really is a bulldog in every sense of the word, physically, uh, you know, f- me- metaphysically, spiritually. Yes. Um he is just the best. Um, this is a role that was originally intended for Joe Pesci. I forget if we mentioned that. Is briefly. that true? Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. I yeah, did they, not know they, that. They, they, they made the role, uh, written, wrote the role with Joe Pesci in mind, but he turned uh, the part down. So Couldn't say sort of... enough times in a Disney movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what um, the f- Sinclair, you f***ing f-? <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, so because Pesci turned it down and went to Sorvino... Um, of course, we know Sorvino from, you know, a million things. Um, most famously, probably, is his role as Pauli Cicero, uh, capo regime of the Lucchesi crime family in Martin Scorsese's 1990 gangster epic, Goodfellas. I don't want any more of that shit. What shit? What are you talking about? Just stay away from the garbage, you know what I mean? I'm not talking about what you did inside. You did what you had to do. I'm talking about now. From now, here, and now. Holly, why would I want to get into that? Don't make a jerk out of me. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. I want to talk to you about Jimmy. You got to watch out for him. He's a good earner, but he's wild. Takes too many chances. No, I know that. I know Jimmy. You think I would take chances like Jimmy? And Tommy, he's a good kid, too. But he's crazy. He's a cowboy. He's got too much to prove. No, I know. You've got to watch out for kids like this. Yeah, I know what they are. I only use them for certain things. Believe Listen, me, you don't have to I ain't going to get fucked like Gribbs. You understand? Gribbs is 70 years old and the fucking guy's going to die in prison. I don't need that. So I'm warning everybody. Everybody. Could be my son. Could be anybody. Gribbs got 20 years just for saying hello to some fucker who was sneaking behind his back selling junk. I don't need that. Ain't going to happen to me. You understand? Uh-huh. You know that you're only out early because I got you a job. Yeah. And I don't need this heat. Understand that? Uh-huh. And you see anybody fucking around with this shit, you're going to tell me, right? Yeah. That means anybody. All right. Yeah? Yeah. He was also in uh, Dick Tracy, which I had kind of forgotten about, uh, but but re- was reminded he was, uh, he was lips manless in Dick Tracy. Oh, look what you did to your pretty tuxedo. Big boy, ain't we pals? No pals in this business, Lips. You taught me that. Sign it. The deed to the club roots? That's right. I'm going into show business now. You're dirty, Lips. You need a bath. 
Not the bat! Not the bat! Big boy, not the bat! Oh, dude, I forgot that. Yeah, I mean, the guy uh, gets I mean, typecast as a mafia so. man. He yeah, gets typecast yeah. as a mafia man because he kind of, he's got that gravitas too. I think that's what's, um, yeah. despite him having this bulldog physique, he's not an intimidating presence to term muscle, but his eyes and his uh, his ability to bring a level of serious threat by mm-hmm. just his bodily yeah. presence. The quiet threat. Yeah, the quiet Quiet menace. threat. But- Kind of like Gandolfini, he also has that like deep sensitivity, like mm-hmm. the deep sort of like, this is my father, he's terrifying, but also he has like a heart of gold. He's like, he he, he could theoretically be the sweetest man in the world yeah. or like the most terrifying man in the world. Yeah, he doesn't play the the like unhinged, like off the rails gangster. He's always like the dad gangster. Um, yeah. And in fact, he was the dad. He was uh, Juliet's dad uh, in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Madam, and happy time. What day is that? Mary, my child. Early next Thursday morn, the gallant, young, and noble gentleman Sir Paris at St. Peter's Church shall happily make thee there a joyful bride. Now, by St. Peter's Church and Peter too, he shall not make me there a joyful bride. Here comes your father. Tell him so yourself. How now, wife? Have you delivered to her our decree? Aye, sir. But she will none. She gives you thanks. I would the fool were married to her grave. How? Will she none? Is she not proud? Doth she not count her blessed? Unworthy as she is, that we have wrought the worthier gentleman to be her bride! And also played Bruce Willis's father on Moonlighting. If anyone therefore can show just cause why they may not lawfully be joined together, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. Oh boy. Excuse me? You have something to say? Well, <clears throat> well, yes. No, uh, yes. No, uh, we hang on one second. No, absolutely not. (sighs) David, don't do it. Ready? I have to. What the hell are you doing? I'm sorry, Dad. I have to do this. Can I have a second of your time, please? And he's also the real father of uh, Mira Servino, right? Isn't that the Yes, that is correct. Yep. And in fact, I have a quick headline for you guys from 2018. Uh, Quote, Harvey Weinstein was accused of harassing Paul Sorvino's daughter. Now, Now Sorvino is threatening to kill him. What was your thoughts when you heard about Harvey Weinstein derailing your daughter's career by actively trying to blacklist her from Hollywood. If I would answer you, I might put everybody in jeopardy. <laughs> but if he, if I meet him on the street, he, will, he ought to hope that he goes to jail. Because if he comes, if we come across, I think he'll be lying on the floor somehow, funny, magically. Funny you should say that. So today, Whoops. let me get that. Help me there. Today, we actually reported that the DA is making strides in their case trying to bring criminal charges to Harvey He's going to go to jail. Yeah? Oh, yeah. 
that son of a bitch, good, good for him if he goes, because if not, he has to meet me, and I will kill the motherfucker. <laughs> Real simple. Have a good one. All right, thanks. Take it easy. Sir, sir did you know about any no. of these accusations no, before? I did, not. did you learn about this like no, the rest I didn't of us know did? The extent of it. No, I did not. I sure didn't. Well, well, what was your initial? If I had known it, he would not. Would you take that? He would not be walking. He'd be in a can on a wheelchair. Right. What was what was your initial reaction when you had heard these the allegations that were made? Oh, furious. Right. Absolutely furious. You you proud of your daughter? My daughter's a wonderful person, courageous and a wonderful human being, and doesn't deserve to have been treated that way by this pig. So. This pig will get his comeuppance. The law will get him. He's going to go to jail and die in jail. But if he doesn't, Harvey, come here. I have some news for you. <laughs> I'll just slap him around. I won't do anything terrible. I mean, that, and honestly, all the respect to Paul Servino. Like, yes. that's yeah. a, a man who stands up for his, his daughter and just his clan and his people. I remember this, Ben. Yeah. I, can think, I think that it, that his personality shines in all these characters we're talking about. Like he's a guy, a real threat. Like this is not, yeah. he's not just saying that. Yeah, I believe not, him. Everything, not, everything about that story totally scanned to me. Like when I, when I, I remember reading that headline, yeah, being TM, like, TMZ interviewed him outside. Paul Servino is going to kill Harvey Weinstein maybe. And I was like, well, yeah, like sure. he's he's Paul Servino. Yeah. Like that's, it of wasn't, course, it wasn't an act. He, folks. He's going to kill him with no. a Tommy gun. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> Hey guys, it's Chris. I wanted to take a quick break here to remind you that The Rewindables is now on Patreon. If you love what we do and love what we make and you want to help us keep this podcast independent and ad-free, obviously it's just a labor of love for all of us, you can help us out by going over to patreon.com slash the rewindables patreon.com slash the rewindables there are three different tiers of membership each with different perks it's the simplest and easiest way to support all the movie deep dive podcasts that we create becoming a patreon gets you all sorts of perks with bonus podcasts and content about the rocketeer and i was sitting there eating a cupcake and i look up and i was like is that rosebud from citizen kane and yes it was in <laughs> <laughs> office he just has rosebud you also get access to swish fm plus which is the irreverent basketball deep dive podcast that i do with ben so if you're in a position to help head over there it's greatly felt and appreciated patreon.com slash the rewindables you sign up you'll get a private podcast feed where all the bonus content with the uh, free episodes will be delivered every week patreon.com slash the rewindables now back to the show I will say the interesting, uh, you know, we go from the field at night where Cliff and PV are driving off with the statue. We hard cut to a pug of a man, a bulldog of a threat, Paul Servino. And how do we introduce Timothy Dalton? It cuts right from Paul Servino's tight up close shot of his face to the close up of the back of Timothy Dalton's head. And he does a turn back to camera. This incredibly dramatic theatrical turn. What's going on, Sinclair? Lenny is dead. Wilma's all wrapped up like a mummy in County General. You didn't play straight with me. I'm sorry about your voice, Eddie. Truly. Now, what went wrong? What went wrong? It's the feds that went wrong. This was supposed to be a simple snatch and grab. He's like out of breath. He's out of yeah. breath. Like, sweaty. It's, it's just, again, the intro to both of these characters, Sorvino and Timothy Dalton's character. What is going on with you guys? <laughs> no, like, there's also like, a dynamic fire, in Fireworks. Camera. That's what's going on between them. Fucking fireworks. Yeah. 
Now, True. there's also a subtle dynamic happening with the camera angle here that I think is equally important. Mm. The camera is tilted slightly downward at Paul Servino. Paul Servino is looking up at uh, at whoever he's talking to. And when we cut to Timothy Dalton, the, sh- the camera is actually tilted upwards, which is a really good technique employed by great directors to employ a subconscious status symbol mm-hmm. that we – immediately know these two men are not on equal ground Mm -mm. that despite Paul Servino being stacked with three men behind him, he is of lower status to whoever he's talking to. And when we see who he's talking to, it's, we don't really know who Neville Sinclair is beyond being an actor at this point on that only that brief snippet we saw in the first few seconds of the film that he is on in some kind yeah, of movie. If, if you caught that, otherwise, yeah, you if, know, if you, you even caught that, know. you don't know who this is. So this and we don't is even just... know. I don't think, did he say his name yet? So I'm not even sure no. if, if we're aware. No, we him. haven't even, well, he says, what's going on, Sinclair? He does say what's so going we, on, Sinclair. Yeah. What's going but, on, Sinclair? Lenny's dead. Wilmer's all wrapped up like a mummy county general. And you didn't play straight with me. And we cut yeah. to Timothy Dalton and he is sweaty and he, and he basically is, obviously embroiled in in some capacity with what we just witnessed there yeah. was a giant gun battle this box is uh that had the rocket pack in it somehow this character neville sinclair is wrapped up in all of it and we're about to learn how yeah so the camera pulls away we go wide here and we're now seeing behind paul servino and you realize the camera is tilted up in these close shots and tilted down on servino and timothy dalton because uh, the character Neville Sinclair is atop a series of steps. That's right. And these these mobster guys are at the bottom of the steps, these marble steps. And so as we pull out, we get a sense that we are in like a palatial mansion. I describe yeah. it as an Egyptian. It's Egyptian. Yeah. This is, looks I'm like glad a, we're a, all on the same page. I was yes. like, are we in like an Egyptian pyramid? It looks like, like an like Egyptian pharaohs or something. Yes. Yeah. It's an Egyptian pharaoh bachelor pad. And this had me honestly genuinely riveted this is so bizarre of a setting for where neville sinclair lives and what's interesting is that it kind of makes sense with what was going on at the time i'm not going to do a whole deep dive but basically the egyptian revival uh scene did hit hollywood because king tut was discovered in 1922, which created a whole Egyptian revival. And a mm. lot of a lot of actual Hollywood architecture started to pull on those motifs. Most famously, there's a theater in Los Angeles called the Egyptian Theater that pulled on this style. And actors in a lot of buildings in the um, LA scene in the 30s and 20s were also pulling from it, also because it had very much this um, pharaoh's temple, uh, live forever uh, feeling, which I think is actually central to Neville Sinclair. We don't know how, but when you see him in the scene, he is in some way a marvelous god in in the Egyptian sense. Like, we don't know how, but this man is uh, obviously of great importance in the way that an Egyptian pharaoh is important. Yeah, very well said. I love that backstory. Also, are you guys aware that this is a real place? This is a... Well, it, technically, it's a it's a recreation. But are you guys familiar with uh, the name the Ennis House? Welcome to one of the most unusual and most celebrated houses in the United States. This is the Ennis House. It was designed and built in 1924 by legendary and amazing American architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright ended up designing four textile block houses in LA, but this one was its most ambitious. 
Each block of the house was cast by hand, made of gravel, granite, and sand from the site. And actually, there's a quote by Frank Lloyd Wright that says, concrete block, the cheapest and ugliest thing in the building world. It lived mostly in the architectural gutter. Why not see what could be done with that gutter rat? Some of you might be thinking this house feels very familiar. And that's because it's being used as a backdrop for movies, TV shows, and fashion shoots. Female, House of the Haunted Hill, Day of the Locust, and of course, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Back in the 20s, LA was a boom town. There are neighborhoods today where almost every style of housing is represented. In LA, anything goes, but there's nothing quite like this. One architecture critic once said that this house was better suited for a Mayan god than for an American family. But an American family did live here. Charles Ennis and his wife Mabel, they used to own a men's clothing store in downtown LA. They were the ones who commissioned the house. In 2005, the house was actually on a list of the most endangered historic places. Then Ron Burkle, a champion of great design and architecture, came to the rescue. And after four years of renovations, the Ennis house has never looked better. So this is um, an actual home, a residential dwelling in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Uh, it was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright for Charles and Mabel Ennis in 1923 and built in 1924. And the house uh, became later became uh, really famous. I mean, obviously, Frank Lloyd Wright, it's going to be famous. Um, but it was used in, in multiple movies, actually. Um, it was first used in the uh, 1959 uh, B-horror movie House on Haunted Hill. Um, mostly, I think, just for the, uh, the exterior facade of it. Um, and then in uh, the 1975 film, The Day of the Locust, um, It was uh, featured uh, prominently, uh, but you may remember it, um, you know, most famously from uh, the 1982 sci-fi classic Blade Runner, um, where it gained a, uh, you know, a, a massive amount of uh, popularity for uh, some of the, you know, scenes and stuff shot. I guess it was, um, uh, you know, Deckard's, uh, uh, you know, sort of apartment. Um, they used uh, interior shots of the house. Um, and they recreated it, actually, uh, for lots of other films. Um, there's sort of a, a similar-looking set uh, that was uh, built on a soundstage for uh, Predator 2, uh, several episodes of Star Trek Next Generation, um, and in the case of The Rocketeer, sections of the Ennis house were recreated in detail, including the patterned art glass on a studio set, Uh, the Rocketeer went as far as adding an upper floor. So the original house didn't have like a top floor. So they added all that stuff. It was all um, built. But uh, but yeah, like basically they they took the um, the blocks are made from concrete, um, like molded. There's like a, you know, a mold basically that the concrete's poured into. But it's something like like 50,000 like concrete blocks were. It's were incredible. Made. The fact that they recreated this is 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 absolutely nuts. But I think. To me, I mean, it's just, you can tell from this 
scene that Neville Sinclair is opulently wealthy. Yeah. And is obviously, despite being sweaty and kind of lower class dress status than the three henchmen that are interrogating him. Uh, he's also swinging around a fencing sword, which I love yes. with like a leather. Pay. Yes. Uh, with an, with an, for practicing dueling. And you got to just, again, we don't really know much about him. We're about to learn more by what they're telling us. But Eddie, Eddie's angry at this character. He's, he's coming in hot at Neville and he goes, what went wrong? The, fe- the feds is what went wrong. You said this was supposed to be a simple snatch and grab. What the hell is going that. on? Yeah. My favorite expression in this whole scene is this was supposed to be a simple snatch and grab. Yeah. So like Christian, you were saying, just like Valentine is interrogating Neville Sinclair here about what's happened with his men. They were chased by the feds. One of them is now dead. The other is, is in the hospital and is maybe on the verge of death. Servino a.k.a. Eddie Valentine, wants to know from Neville Sinclair what his men were stealing and why they were being chased by the federal agents. Yes, and he, Neville Sinclair, initially refuses to tell Eddie. Like, he's being quite dismissive and flippant, and it's making Eddie even more upset. I'm sorry about your voice, Eddie, truly. And what went wrong? What went wrong? It's the feds that went wrong. This was supposed to be a simple snatch and grab. What the hell is going on? I didn't say it'd be simple, Eddie. And snatch and grabs what you're supposed to be good at. It's what I pay you for. Now, where's the package? Nothing's gonna happen with me and my boys until you tell me exactly why this merchandise is so important to the feds. Send me a check. Let's get out of here, boys. It's a rocket. A rocket? Yeah. Like in the comic books. And Eddie's just, send me a check. Let's get out of here, boys. He's basically saying we're done with this job, whatever the job is, that is obviously requiring gun battles in the valley. It's obviously a pretty dangerous job at this point. And Neville Sinclair reluctantly admits... It's a rocket. And Eddie goes, a rocket? And Neville says a line that I love because it gives a subtle nod to Dave Mm -hmm. Stevens. He goes, yeah, like in the comic books. Mm. At this point. Beautiful. Love that little uh, little homage, little reference. A rocket? Yeah. Like in the comic books. Now, what happened to it? I don't know. Luma knows. He's in the hospital surrounded by cops. Maybe in a couple of days we get the talk. I don't have a couple of days, Eddie. What rooms were we in? <laughs> Mr. Movie Star. <laughs> He's going to walk into the hospital with a smile on his face and a handful of posies. He's going to charm the feds to death. <laughs> At this point, we kind of learn a little bit more that Neville really wants to get this rocket pack. And he essentially asks... Can I just go to the hospital myself? Yeah, yeah, that's what room Wilmer is in, which causes Eddie to burst out laughing in his face. <laughs> yes, and this is when we learn who Neville Sinclair is, because Eddie goes, ha, 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 Mr. Movie Star. Uh, He's going to so walk good. into the hospital with a smile on his face and a handful of posies. He's going to charm the feds to death. Mm. And Neville has a beautiful little, like, happy man's laugh that I love. Yeah, like I totally love that he's like the, like the passive aggressive, like, yeah, I'm laughing along with you. No, yeah. I'm not. Like, that's adorable, Eddie, that you think 
I'm going to do that. He goes, that's not exactly what I had in mind. And then he goes, who cares what you had in mind? You don't need my services anymore. We can take it from here. <laughs> Mr. Movie Star. <laughs> He's going to walk into the hospital with a smile on his face and a handful of posies. He's going to charm the feds to death. <laughs> <laughs> That's not exactly what I had in mind. Who cares what you had in mind? <laughs> you don't need my services anymore. You can take it from here. And I'll tell you what, you pay me what you owe me because you're half a lunatic anyhow. Yes, yeah, shoot! I want that rocket, Eddie. Not next week, not tomorrow, now. I'll tell you what, you can pay me what you owe me now because you're half a lunatic anyhow. And Neville mm. says, I want that rocket, Eddie. Not next week, not tomorrow, now. We have a deal. Now you bring me the rocket and I'll double your price. Well, and no, first, I, wait, 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 you skipped over something very important, which is that he flings his his fencing epee right onto uh, 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 Eddie's, you know, rather large, uh, you know, kind of like throat. Um, yes. Right under his Correct. chin and has it like the, the point of his of his sword literally under his chin. Uh, and, and his boys like with their guns out. And then without even breaking eye contact, uh, Eddie just puts his hand up saying like, no, no, it's okay. While the sword is still, you know, literally pointed at his, uh, touching his throat, uh, you know, ready to kill him. He's very cool, very calm, collected, puts his hand up to, to kind of like, you know, uh, settle his, his, his boys a little bit. And then they start, uh, start talking business. You don't need my services anymore. You can take it from here. And I'll tell you what, you pay me what you owe me because you're half a lunatic anyhow. <laughs> yes, yeah, shoot! I want that rocket, Eddie. Not next week, not tomorrow. Now. We have a deal. <sighs> you bring me that rocket, and I'll double your price. You'll triple my price. You'll triple my price because he doesn't take shit from anybody and he is a yep. hardcore badass. And, uh, you know, even though in the beginning of the scene, as you uh, pointed out, Christian, the, you know, just the, the physical height, uh, you know, sort of uh, positioning of the men, you know, it's clear one one guy, one uh, party is working for the other party. And you're like, oh, I guess he's like sort of subservient. But but now Eddie is, uh, you know, he's got he's got some some juice and he's really going like head to head, toe to toe with this fancy Hollywood boy. And uh, yeah, man, the sparks are just flying between them. I just love I love their like back and forth, like kind of you know, machismo measuring. Um, it's just beautiful. Let's talk just a sec, because uh, we did it with Paul Servino. Can we talk for a second just a little bit about the look and the vibe and just the whole deal with Neville Sinclair? Oh, yeah. So we have the pencil-thin mustache, this cream-colored silk shirt mm. with a few top buttons undone. And then he's just got one leather glove on one hand, and he's holding this fencing sword. And... Is it just me or is this dude's voice and accent and vibe just giving you a lot of like 
Sean Connery. I mean, it's like double, you know, the the 007 thing, yeah. right? Like he's he's got that broad smile. His many many teeth are on display with that wry like cackle, and he's just very sensual in a Sean Connery kind of way. He's he's sweaty with that open collar shirt. And he's in this like palatial mansion. The fireplace is roaring. Yeah, I mean, it just I I I keep saying the same thing, but it's really giving me Ben like 007 vibes. Well, it's interesting you say that because, of course, as we know, uh, Timothy Dalton was 007. Um, and again, we're gonna have like I I think we're gonna have to have like a bonus episode about Timothy Dalton at some point. So I don't want to get like too far in the weeds um but i think like the headline and most interesting thing to me so he starred in two 007 films uh 1987's um the living daylights and 1989's license to kill um and as a kid so this movie the rocketeer came out in 91 and as a kid i hadn't actually seen him uh i hadn't seen either of those uh bond films you know they were sort of like at the time like I remember thinking, like, oh, he was kind of like the random Bond that no one really remembered. Obviously, it was Connery and... Um, Roger Moore. We Roger, Roger Moore. Moore. Um, and then, of course, we get into the Brosnan years, you know, sh- shortly later. And I think as a kid, I was always kind of like, oh, yeah, like, by the time he was in The Rocketeer, like, he had retired as Bond. But that is not true. Um, the craziest thing to me in in going back and researching some of this is that so even though it had been, you know, a year or so um, since his last Bond film, uh, when Rocketeer was, you know, began production, um, Timothy Dalton was still very much like the sitting James Bond. He was contracted originally for three Bond films and uh, pre-production for his third film had already begun in 1990 and was scheduled to be released in 1991. Um, but then there was like a legal dispute between, um, United Artists and, uh, UA, uh, MGM and, uh, Eon Productions, uh, which basically, uh, put a, put a pause to that third Bond film and the legal battle didn't end until 1993. I want you to know this is nothing personal. It's purely business. Killing me won't stop anything, Sanchez. See you in hell. This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You're going after Sanchez, aren't you? Are you crazy? Make a sound, and you're dead. Your license to kill is revoked. Effective immediately. License to Kill came out in July 89, so it was like... You know, uh, by the time the Rocketeer started shooting in 1990, it had been like about a year since um, since his last film, you know, his Bond film had come out. But he was like basically still like the acting, like he was the the, the sitting 007 and was was like probably going to be in the third Bond film. So we have like the active James Bond playing a spoiler alert Nazi spy, a uh, bad guy in a Disney movie, which is just like wild beautiful yeah like incredible casting to me uh to make that choice arguably timothy dalton in particular faced a similar problem that george lazenby had (laughs) that Mm. george lazenby was the first bond after sean connery right and it it 
no one would accept him as Bond. And yeah. despite making a great Bond film, no one accepted it, and he was very short-lived as Bond. Roger Moore, shockingly, kind of became a popular James Bond, and Timothy Dalton had the unfortunate reality that at that point, everyone had accepted Roger Moore as Bond, and when Timothy Dalton gets cast, it doesn't hit the same way it appears. Right. And well, he took the character in like a dramatically different direction. Um, and let it be known Moore's. that Steve Lynch, my father, was always a huge fan of The Living Daylights and was adamant at a very young age. like, you got to see The Living Daylights. It's actually a great James Bond. And I agree. Yeah. Uh, it features James Bond at one point, I recall, sledding down a hill in a cello case. Yep. Glad I insisted you brought that cello. Rocketeer for Timothy Dalton was again a moment where he is trying to rebrand himself as not Bond yeah. and trying to reestablish Timothy Dalton just the actor. And this movie obviously did not hit, which is unfortunate because he's so good in this movie. <laughs> I think I think Timothy brilliant. Dalton is incredible in the role of Neville Sinclair. And I think even going back to just his attire, he reads and again i said clark gable and i really mean it i think his handsomeness in this movie despite being an errol flynn type his body language um you know clark gable of today is understandably probably uh, george clooney george clooney is the clark gable of today mm, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's that style of posture he's just this kind of like very macho looking dude He's got in this film like a kind of billowing puffy shirt with mm-hmm. sleeves rolled up, a, a tailored trouser uh, that's kind of like this brown ruddy color with high boots. And he's got a leather glove and he's practicing fencing and he's just so calm and cool that he's got three mobsters shaking him down. And at one point he's just putting his leg casually up on his own coffee table yeah, and leaning delicately on his own sword, his appellette. And that just reads of like, this guy is all all power. There's no, he's being threatened. He's got swag. No point like, is he, he's bottom line. Got the, he's got the juice. He's got it. He is basically so obviously important in Hollywood that nothing threatens him. He's yeah. like, who's going to hurt me? I'm a star. Yeah. You can threaten me with guns, but at the end of the day, I'm a movie star and you're not going to do anything. And you could read that from how Timothy Dalton plays the scene. Yeah, I am invincible in my Frank Lloyd Wright Egyptian castle uh, with my, uh, you know, vases of lilies. And there's also a, a beautiful, massive fireplace behind him with a with a roaring fire. Um, the artwork, I mean, we haven't really talked that much about the interior of this house because it's impossible to convey 
how sick this place looks. Um, but like the, the couches are great. The couches, leather the, couches. These these like statue, these little statuettes that he has. Uh, you know, tastefully um, placed about uh, in the little like various alcoves. I mean, this thing is like my childhood dream. It's it basically looks like a Lego uh, house. Uh, the way it's constructed with all all the squares and and you know varying kind of like levels and and little like nooks and crannies. Like I just want to ha- like this is this is has to be like one of my fa- like all time favorite like movie set houses. Uh, of- but it also reads to me a tad like Citizen Kane's house that it's oh this yeah palace. Yeah. I mean it would be terrifying to actually sad, live in. Sad it's man. gothic. Yeah, yeah it's, it's gothic. Like there are like candles on the wall. When like, you're having parties, it's great. This- it's it's when it's empty that that I'm sure Neville Sinclair cryptic. stares into the fire and the dread fills his soul at night. I just uh, having visited William Hearst Castle, it gives me all those vibes that it's like it's so cool from a elegant Frank Lloyd Wright perspective, but also I couldn't imagine living in it. <laughs> me yeah. personally, I'd be this is uh, too much. It's too much. It's too opulent. Yeah, yeah, it's it's cavernous and creepy, and but it's so cool looking on film. It's so cool. Oh my god, it's so cool. So wrapping up the scene here, uh, Eddie Eddie Valentine uh, says basically to Neville, like, "Hey, you're going to triple my price." He finds out that what he's been chasing is this rocket. He says, "You need to triple my price." And as the men are leaving the room, oh wait, did we? He asks, sorry, we 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 skipped over a very important little detail, which is that right um, after uh, you know uh, Neville has the has the the sore tip on Eddie's throat, um, he at the uh, um, to sort of like remove it, he lowers it down ever so slightly uh, to the you know like lower right and somehow uh, attaches the tip of the sword to um, the carnation, the little white carnation on Eddie's lapel and flings it off of his lapel with the sword in the air where it is caught by uh, by one of uh, Eddie's henchmen, which is a little move uh, that we'll see uh, that Neville actually learned maybe maybe from Hollywood, maybe from the movies. Some and I will movie, say the movie magic that he uh, inserts into his real life. The only time I've seen a boutonniere is at a prom, <laughs> proms yeah. and weddings. And I, and I learned that uh, boutonnieres were actually a symbol of warding off bad luck and evil spirits. Ooh. And that this actually was a thing that people would wear. And it kind of had a little bit of history to it that this gangster is wearing it as a status symbol, but also a little bit to keep, you know, the the evil spirits from killing him. I think wow. there's a little of Eddie Valentine there as well. Flower varieties have been associated with different meanings ever since mankind began to document itself. The ancient Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, and Chinese all had documentation for the meanings behind flowers, and William Shakespeare made no fewer than 200 references to flowers and their meanings in his various works. The most famous of these is likely a quote from Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet is quoted as saying, What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And while flower meaning and symbolism does go back all the way into the ancient world, it was the Victorians who took flower meanings to a whole new level. Flowers came to take on the role of communicating thoughts and sentiments that couldn't be expressed out loud, and many, if not most, homes had books that were reference guides as to what the meanings of different flowers were. 
At this time, flowers took on especially unique and narrow meanings, such as striped carnations signaling refusal or spring crocuses representing youthful gladness. So while it's clear that well-to-do Victorians definitely had somewhat limited hobbies, flowers do still have meanings today, even if they aren't quite as loaded as they were in the past. So with that in mind, let's take a look at some of the most common choices men make for boutonniere flowers and the meanings behind them. One more note here before we continue is that the meanings behind different flowers may vary based upon region, depending on where you are in the world. So it's always best to check what the meanings behind a flower may be before you wear it in a given region, as flowers may represent anything as diverse as celebrations, political parties or movements, milestones, and so on. But yeah, just remember that uh, that that little flower flick with the sword, because uh, it's not the not the only time Wait, it's going to happen. All right, we need to geek out on this. Got so f- it's seventeen oh seven. Yeah, find the find the timestamp. Right? Yep. yep. <laughs> Let's talk through the mechanics yeah, it's... of how this boutonniere is flinged off. Because if you just go frame by frame, uh, Eddie Valentine's standing there and Neville Sinclair walks up to him and gives him basically like a little poke in the chest with his sword. Yeah. Like right, you know, like right on the breast. And he appears, I, I, I imagine the stage choreography of this works like this. He pokes him with the sword and there's some sort of ring or catch on the boutonniere where the sword is able to latch onto it or maybe it's magnetic there must be like a magnet Magnet. i don't i think it's a pin i don't i don't think it's um i think it's just a a pin you can see the pin in the uh shirt yeah there is a pin pin. but how does how does it like the the mechanics of uh, the movie magic have actually because i was like is there there, like an invisible string that they that they use to pull the thing off because it's like an impossible maneuver I don't to, think to so. I think I think Timothy Timothy Dalton legitimately whips flings it. flings it, and then the hard cut to uh, the goon catching it with his left hand. You might be right. You I might think, be right. I think Timothy Dalton just I, does I, it because Paul Sorvino winces in a way that le- leads me to believe that happened. I'll take it. I'll I'll say this. Hmm. I would bet that that is a stage combat stunt person Ooh. doubling out as Timothy Dalton who has experience with this mm. i wonder if they did it in one take it may, maybe they took 50 takes to to successfully do it but i think christian you're probably right but i think it's probably a double i'm that gonna give timothy in. dalton credit i think timothy dalton did this this stunt i mean we don't uh, we only see the back and the arm in the shot where we where he actually does the maneuver so you know there, there's no it's hard to say maybe i'm just naive but i like i like to believe that timothy dalton had trained with his little sword to get into the character of Neville Sinclair and could do that basic flick. I'm going to tell you, as it's not a basic flick. that's done a lot of stage combat, like I can tell you, uh, I have, I would, I really would not be surprised if this was a, uh, like a, a stunt double okay. uh, choreographer person. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, we need a guy with a good right forearm and just dab some sweat on it. There's a glove. There's a lot covering up the arm. Mm-hmm. I bet it honestly could be someone that designed the boutonniere like i just think there's some sort of little contraption happening because if you go through frame by frame you can see the pin right? yeah you guys can see that yep, yep. yes right yep definitely you can see the pin there's a little glints the the light glints off it at yeah one the point. glint yeah but man that is a really I... impressive move i mean obviously we you don't see 
you know, where it goes in that one shot. And then when it cuts to the, to the gangster catching it, I'm sure someone just tossed it to him. But like, and there's again, a good arc. It's not like it goes into the air, like off his lapel. Like it's a for yeah. sure. Yeah. Like it's again, not, it's a, that's a real effect. Matter. I think again, like we started with this sequence where Neville Sinclair is high class. Uh, Paul Servino is low class. And the final shot, like is ultimately Paul Servino getting up off the couch where he is obviously in the worst position and Neville's threatening him with a sword slashes off his lapel. Mm -hmm. Two goons are pointing guns at Neville, but then Paul Servino gets up and the camera pushes in and we now see Eddie Valentine and Neville Sinclair at equal eye height. Yeah. And it face frames face. in that this is a, a mano, a mano fight of, of, of who's got stronger balls. This yeah. is literally a, a who's got bigger yeah. balls fight. And when Eddie it's says, the Howard Hughes, "It's the Howard Hughes moment of who works for who." Yeah, and when you know what I mean, it's when Eddie says, "You'll triple my price." He has his index finger pointed directly in Neville's face, like he, yep. yeah, he's not holding a sword that he's uh, you know sticking to his With throat. With a ring, a bottom yeah, ring, a big ring on his pinkies. But, but it is a very much a power move of like I'm gonna take my pointer finger and stick it right in your face and demand you're gonna triple my price because I'm not taking shit from you. He's pointing with his finger, but he's also pointing like with his nose, as weird as oh, that sounds. Yeah. He's also like using his like bulldog nose to like, he's using his snout mm -hmm. to really like <laughs> point as well. Definitely using his snout. Yeah. And yeah. and just as a real like, yeah, like we're going dogs. boys and uh, saunters out. And as he's sauntering out, he's kind of yeah. angry at this point. And, and he, under his breath as he's leaving, says... What's a movie star need a rocket for anyway? What's a movie star need with a rocket anyways? And so that's like the million dollar question we're all wondering at this point. What does a I think movie like, star like, need that for? That is literally the question the audience is wondering. Yeah. Like we are seeing this scene through the eyes of Paul Servino, which is like, yeah, what is, what's a, what's a movie star need like a, a scary rocket. It's a very for. appropriate question. Yeah. Movie yes, stars yeah. should really have no need. And, and also like, not just like, oh, I want that, but like, I want it so badly that I'm going to hire a bunch of mobsters and pay them like basically whatever they demand uh, in order to get my hands on it. Yes. Um, and yeah. after those goons and Eddie Valentine leave, we cut to the after Wait. effects of. Wait. Oh, <laughs> slow wanna, down you now. Go back. Oh, we, have, we, have, we have we have the uh, the the slice of the flowers. We I, I no, that's what I'm saying. Like oh, okay, so basically, sorry, sorry. It, it cuts to <laughs> Neville Sinclair. It and preemptively he slowed you down. Now this is Timothy Dalton. This is oh, Timothy yeah. Dalton does a little a sword trick where he flips the sword from pointed downward, staked into the ground, and flips it upwards, catches the sword in midair, mm -hmm. and swooshes it sideways and cuts down what appear to be a bunch of tulip bulbs. Bloody amateurs. He slices all of these flowers just with a whisk of rage mm. and says, bloody amateurs. Bloody amateurs. <laughs> bloody uh. amateurs. Uh, <laughs> which speaks to that Neville Sinclair might not be American the way he's saying bloody amateurs. He's mm. uh, bringing a level of, where is this guy from? That's what amateur, I Saboteur. Hmm, yeah. We'll there see. was something about that 1940s vernacular of actors that was called transatlantic yeah. um, vocabulary that he, he seems to be employing this 
form of speech that doesn't exist anywhere. So, but I love it. Nutty amateurs. My old boy. You have to be willing to rewatch a movie. 